Hi friends, we are back with episode 60 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, I am so excited to be back with you. I've missed you more than I can express. It's been almost a year and a half since we've been able to have a live session with people together, gathered safely, and we are gathering safely. There is a mask mandate. Every single person in our uh, amphitheater has to wear a mask, including myself. So I want to apologize, first of all, that in this session you will hear uh, a bit of a muffle on my voice, and that's simply because I have to wear a mask there too. I care about everybody, and I, I really am sensitive to those uh, not only who have health issues, but also the care, concern, and the fear that they might have during this legitimately dangerous time. So I apologize for the sound. We tried to EQ it, and the guys tried to make it sound as best as possible, but the beauty is the conversation's still there. God is still working in that conversation as we launch this new series. Now, last week, the very first week of uh, this new series, of course, getting back, we had to uh, rewire a bunch of things and get everything back together. And unfortunately, the first session uh, did not get recorded well. And so we cannot share the first session with you, but I will have on the website, thebiblelab.com, you can go there and you can find the study guide for session one, which has a ton of information on there, more than usual on that study guide. So you can catch up actually fairly easily by looking at that study guide. And then we are starting here this series of audio with session two. And I do refer back to some of the things from session one because I knew uh, last Saturday that we were not gonna have audio for that first week. And so I do kind of make sure you're still caught up and, and you don't miss anything too much. But we are going on this journey together. It's called You're, You Never Stand Alone. And I base that title off of uh, there's a song that I grew up with, maybe you grew up with as well. It says, Dare to be a Daniel, Dare to Stand Alone. And the fact is, I've read this book of Daniel more times than I can count, and we're going deep, deep into word studies and, and trying to see what it really says here. And the fact is, there is not one place in the entire book of Daniel where God ever wants you to stand alone. He doesn't want you standing alone. He didn't want to stand alone either. He wants to be right there next to you, loving you and helping you through these times in your life. So I'm excited that you're on this journey. I look forward to going on this journey with you today. Welcome back to the Bible Lab. Good, here we go. Number one, if the person sitting next to me claimed they had a vision, I would be tempted to tell them to go see a shrink. Yes. And I know we have a couple of shrinks in the audience here. I apologize if you don't like that term. But let's look here. Okay, we are really mixed. It's, uh, yeah, we are so mixed. It looks to me to be about 35% yes, 35% no, and around 30% maybe. So we're all over the place, uh, probably because you're polite and you don't want to tell people to go see a shrink, but I know you'd be thinking it in your head. Because if you're like me, from time to time, someone will come up to you, maybe I'm more of a magnet than others, but someone will come up to me and start talking about their very unique belief system and what God showed them and I, uh, I'm just waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, Roy, I need you someplace else. You're needed someplace else because this is getting really weird. So typically, if someone comes up and says, I have a vision, um, chances are you're like, boy, what did you eat for dinner before you went to sleep? Number two, with the growing Christian influence, the world should be getting better and better. With the growing Christian influence, the world should be getting better and better. We are mixed on this too, but it looks like we have about 70% yes, 20% no, and 10% maybe, if my math's correct there. So the majority of you are saying yes, because of the Christian influence, the world should be getting better and better. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who are Christians, um, eschatology is the big theological word for 
what the Bible says about the end times event. Does the Bible say, because of the Christian influence, the world would be getting better and better? Oh, so why are we complaining? Because the world is not getting better and better. We're going to talk about that today. Because quite frankly, there are a lot of, quote, believers who are speaking on your behalf. The media loves putting a camera in front of their face. And when I work, because most of my work now is working with non-believers, when I work and they talk about what believers think, and they try being sensitive to what they think via the media, I would want to hear from them. Most of the time, I'm appalled. And maybe you are too. We're going to talk about that today as we go through Daniel chapter 2. Number three, yes, this is a trick question, so make sure you pay attention to every single word here. God makes non-believers so frustrated that they want to kill believers. Now, I knew that I would see a sea of no, which I am seeing, but I am seeing some people who understand since it's a trick question, they should vote the opposite of what they think they should vote. So I'm seeing about seven or eight yeses, and I'm seeing several maybes out here as well, maybe five maybes out in the crowd. So today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is about a pagan king who receives a vision at night, and based on that vision, what does he decide to do? <laughs> Kill all the wise men. Let me go through this again. God makes non-believers so frustrated that they want to kill believers. Do you want to vote again? No, we'll just move on. Number four, God wants us to join together to fight worldly politicians and their bad policies. Ah, I expected this too. So I see about 15% yes. I see about 60% no. The rest are maybe Today's topic is probably going to be more relevant than you thought it would be, especially as we look at what is the highest tension point right now between Christians and politics. We've got to take a look at this, because today you're going to see something within the character of God that may have you readjust how you respond, how you react, how you post, how you like posts, how you comment on some of the social media posts, it may have quite an effect on you today when you understand the character of God a little bit better. Number five, it is God who orchestrates times of persecution, not the devil. It is God who orchestrates times of persecution, not the devil. Oh, this is a tough one again because I'm seeing a sea of no. I'm seeing about 80% no. I'm seeing about 10% yes and 10% maybe. The majority of you are saying no. Okay, last week, those of you that were here, and we tried to record it, it didn't work. I'm sorry for those of you who are wanting the recording. We're still getting back to everything connected the, the way it needed to be, and there was, a, there was an issue with the recording. So I'll just help some of you catch up. Last week, we talked about the sovereignty of God, which is, once again, a really big word for talking about the authority of God. Who's in charge? In fact, the, the story that Daniel tells starts by using a name of God that's not typically used for that time period. Typically, they use the word Yahweh, which means God is. God is past, present, future. God is here. God's with you. God's your friend. And Daniel doesn't start with that term for God. He starts with the name Adonai. And Adonai means the sovereign God, the God who's in charge, the God in authority, the God who makes decisions and makes things happen. But the interesting thing that Daniel does 10 verses later after introducing, at the very beginning, verse 1, he introduces Nebuchadnezzar. And he uses the same root word of Adonai for Nebuchadnezzar. And we have this battle that Daniel's talking about and saying, this is a battle between two sovereign authorities. Two individuals who say, no, I'm in charge. And you have God himself who's saying, I'm in charge. Nebuchadnezzar who's saying, 
I'm in charge. And today you're going to see what happens when two authorities clash. And you can't help it but look and say, is God in control even during the times of persecution? And many of you who grew up in the church, you know the verses that God sets the times and seasons. There are times that may seem like a curse, may seem like the worst persecution you're going through. And today we're going to ask the question, are those the times when God is out of control or is God actually in control even during times of persecution? And what does he want to say to you and to others during that time? So I want us to open up our Bibles. I have right here on the study guide the verses we're going to go through in the New Living Translation. We're in Daniel chapter 2. Now, one of the challenges of going through Daniel, especially those of you here who are Seventh-day Adventists, is probably two of the chapters you know the best in the Bible include Daniel chapter 2. You got this image, this image of this man with the head of gold. You got the arms and chest of silver. You, you got the mini skirt of brass and legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. So you've got this figure, and most of the time when people look at Daniel chapter 2, what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about the image. And we want to talk about the fact that, see, we, as great Bible students and specialists in prophecy, can go through and we can show you exactly where we are. And some people will say, we're on the toenails of the feet of iron and clay. Well, today you're going to see it doesn't matter whether we're on the toenails or the ankles. It doesn't matter if we're the kneecaps of the statue that's not the most important thing of Daniel chapter 2. Because that's not the most important thing to Daniel. That's not what he spends the most time trying to show you about the character of God in the story of his experience in captivity, socially distanced from his loved ones, unable to go to church, in a political upheaval with leadership you disagree with, and yet you have to comply with. He's in the very similar situation where we are. I heard your comment, Michael. <laughs> We're there. We're in the days of Daniel, where there is so much unrest that people are focusing on the image and they've completely been distracted from the God who actually showed people the image. Who is the projector of the image? And so today we're going to take a look at it. We're going to break it up in a couple of sections. And quite frankly, you'll notice if you've peeked at the study guide, we don't spend any time on the different levels of the image. Why? You'll see why in a moment. Let's start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And uh, New Living Translation reads like this. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. Everyone, anyone ever been in that situation? Yes, especially when your daughter brought home that guy, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And by the way, from verse 4 on till uh, chapter 7, I think it's verse 17, um, we're in Aramaic. Aramaic is important in, in this context to understand the political language at that time was Aramaic. It wasn't Hebrew. So what's happening is now we're getting into politics. And I know you're super excited to talk about politics because you haven't been overwhelmed with that during the week. But from now on till verse, uh, verse 18 of chapter 7, we're dealing with politics. This is all about politics. What do you do when the political leadership over you is in disagreement with your philosophy and your theology? So we shift into Aramaic because it's all about politics now. 
Verse 4, the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king! Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. Now, some of you may be here saying, this is really an unreasonable request. Why would he say that? Well, I'll tell you why he said that. Because in Babylon at that time, the religious beliefs, remember, these wise men, these astrologers, these enchanters, these guys are not made up of the Jews. There's very few Jews there. There's only four that we know of. There was probably a few more. But the local wise men, as, as they're sometimes called, these occult practicers claimed very loudly that they had a direct connection with the gods. So the king is saying, you know, you say it, so prove it. If you have this direct connection, because it's obvious, one of the gods is sending me this vision. He didn't know where he's getting this vision from. He just knows he's getting it. And you can tell. Some of you in this room, you've had moments in your life when you received an impression, you had a dream, you had something that was so impactful on you that unlike other dreams, other impressions, other thoughts, other things you pictured in your mind, there are times in your life when you're like, there's something to this. There's some power here. There's something that is supernatural in, in this experience. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this. So he turns to the people who claim to spend their entire uh, occupational working time connecting with the divine realm. So he says, I, that's not my job. It's your job. That's why I pay you. That's why you're here. It's why I feed you the royal food. So it's time to pay up. Tell me. Consult your gods. Do whatever you got to do with the bones and the tea leaves and all the stuff. But you tell me, what does this mean? Because I need some sleep. So we pick up the story. In verse 7. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I'll change my mind, but tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. That's why he's holding out because he, he wants to make sure they're not just grasping at straws. Verse 10, the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream, and no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you the dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. All right, so here we are. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. We're going to get to his second dream here in a little bit, uh, in, in a couple of sessions. But here's his first dream. And uh, in fact, the words that are, that are used here literally say that his spirit troubled him and his sleep left him. That's the literal translation of the Hebrew at the, at the beginning of this chapter. So God gave a vision to a non-believer and it frustrated him to the level of destructive rage. Is this a typical practice of God or not? And what does this say about God that he would put his believers in this precarious situation? Think about this. While you're raising your hands for a microphone or, or your cards for a microphone, I want you to think about this. So God gives a vision. Who's he give the vision to? Just shout it out. Nebuchadnezzar. 
Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is a devout believer in God, right? No. In fact, he's such a devout anti-Yahweh politician that he changes anybody's name who even says Yahweh. We, we went through this last week where you look at Daniel. Uh, you, you got Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. He changes them to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He changes Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. Why? When you looked at it last week, you saw that he was doing the antithesis, saying, your God is nothing. My gods are much more powerful. So here's a guy who's actually anti the Jewish God. And God decides to give him a vision. Now let me ask you a question. How do we typically view this vision in Daniel 2? Who is the vision for of the image in Daniel 2? Who's the audience? Who do we typically view as the audience of the vision of the image of multi-metals? Who do, uh, just shout it out. Who do we typically envision as the audience? How do we apply it? We apply it to us, exactly, Jay. So we typically look at the audience as us. We need to know God is sharing with us what's to come. The reality here in the story, that's, that's too big of a stretch. Because if God wanted us to be the audience, if he wanted Daniel to know what was to come in the kingdoms and, and, and what to look for, if he wanted Daniel to share that with the Jewish believers who would become Christians later on, if God wanted Daniel to know, he would have given Daniel the vision. So our problem approaching Daniel chapter 2 for generations now is we still see Daniel chapter 2 as a vision for us to know what is to come. But that's not how it was given, and it wasn't given to the person who would have shared that with us. It was shared with an anti-Yahweh individual leader. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, what, what you're saying kind of reminds me of uh, what I read in the book by uh, Don Richardson called Eternity in Their Hearts. Hmm. And uh, if you remember back a few decades ago, he was in the movie, um, what was called Peace Child. And uh, he was a Christian missionary to different cultures all over the world. And uh, in the book, he, he takes to task Christians who have come to believe that the Holy Spirit, that God through the Holy Spirit only speaks to us. And we are the sole recipients of his wisdom and his messages. Mm -hmm. And uh, in many cases, he uh, tells stories of different cultures around the world who when missionaries come, the response of the people is, did your grandfather know this message? Mm -hmm. And why didn't he come? And so the evidence is that the Holy Spirit's already been at work mm -hmm. in people groups all over the world, mm -hmm. and we're just finally catching up yeah. to what God's doing instead I, I, of the I, other way around. Yeah, I, I love it. But I love how God does it as well from a standpoint of, if you look at this, God decides, I'm going to share information that's so deep and so secret, and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges it in, in a moment here. But I'm not going to share that with my embedded believers. I'm going to choose to share this information, which, if you look at it, this was to help Nebuchadnezzar. God is of such a character that in this situation, where the people of God have been captured, enslaved, in the service of people who are anti-God, and God in that moment chooses not to open the ground and swallow him up, not to create like he does in Nineveh during Nahum, you know, to have fire and horroring floods and armies coming in. Instead, he chooses to say, 
you know, I want to help you. I want to help you put your kingdom in perspective and I want to help you map out what would be the best golden empire for Babylon. It, in many ways, it doesn't seem to make sense. But we're going to get into this even deeper in a moment. Green microphone, Dave. Thank you, Roy. Um, what you caused me to do with this question is, is uh, make me back up and, and look, this, look at this from a, a broader perspective, cool. uh, the 30,000 foot. Uh, as Paul Harvey might say, uh, here's the rest of the story. Yeah. So we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar. He's the most powerful person on the face of the earth. He has control over more people than anybody else that we know of at that point in time. Right. In this age today of influencers, he's the influencer of influencers. People yes. adore him, they worship him, mm -hmm. they want to be like him, they want to follow him. Yeah. And then God gives him this vision. Mm -hmm. So, the other part of this is, in the end, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer. And what happens when the most powerful person on the face of the earth becomes a believer? That's a huge message, and you've got a lot of people following that. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious that God has his wisdom in what he is doing. When you look at the big picture, he is giving this message to the most influential person in the world at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen through history, not just with Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see over the next couple of chapters, just, just how even the most influential people, when they become believers, unfortunately, because they have not had uh, the Bible lab long enough, uh, they make assumptions about what God wants and they still struggle with self, making self Lord and making self more important than God and others. And so we'll see what, what happens, but you're absolutely right. We've seen throughout history what happens when great leaders become believers and, uh, and how they have great influence, but also the challenge of them staying connected to the God who is trying to help them use their influence in the way that God wants to be represented. Michael, over here. It is tempting, but I think it's incorrect for us to believe that this chap these chapters of Daniel were written for 21st century Adventists. Mm -hmm. it, it was not. Yeah. It, it is important to Adventism, mm -hmm. but it's not, that wasn't the audience. This was mm -hmm. written for the salvation of Israel that was languishing under the dictatorship of a brutal king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. well, it, it, even gets, it even gets more narrow than that. And I really appreciate what, what you just said, Michael, because you, you are right. It's not for us today. One of the greatest challenges we have, especially as a movement, those of you who have been part of this movement, is the misuse of prophecy, books of prophecy in the Bible. Let me help you understand, from a theological standpoint, prophecy is never meant to be used as a crystal ball to predict the future. Because if you do that, you will set times, dates, places, people that connect with the imagery of that prophecy, and the day will come and go, and you will be Oh, well, no, uh, obviously now this is what it means. I didn't know that this was coming too. And the application of current events with prophetic message typically, if not always, leads to incredibility. People cannot treat you as a credible source of theology. We've seen that all throughout. There was a time in the 70s when we got the Vietnam crisis where people were looking at the three frogs of Revelation. Of course, three frogs, why didn't we see it? You know, Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos, there's the three and they start applying all these things and now how many decades are we past and how many dates do people have to keep setting before we realize if there's any movement on earth that should not set dates or should not say we are absolutely infallible in applying prophecy, we should be the most humble 
Christian movement in the world today because we, we should have learned our lesson. So we cannot look at Daniel chapter 2 as a crystal ball of things to come. Prophecy in the Hebrew mindset was always used more like a mirror. I would say a rear view mirror to look in the past to see possibly how it displays how God is Yahweh. He knows beginning, he knows middle, he knows end. There is no one like God. He is outside of time, but he works within time. That's why prophecy is here. Prophecy is to encourage you after things have taken place that God definitely is in charge and he knows what's going to happen. And he told us the ending of the story. So if you can trust that, you can trust the ending of the story is happily ever after. So as you look at this, you're absolutely right, Michael. This message of times, dates, kingdoms in many ways is not for us why we're skipping it because we get so hung up on we know what this represents did you know if you were to do a simple little search on daniel chapter 2 and look at different modes of thought of theologians who are applying what the time periods are for each of the segments of the statue you would realize there are a lot of different interpretations of where those feet of iron and clay end up and what that rock is that, that comes in. So, best thing for us to do is take a step back and use the Bible Lab method and say, instead of us trying to be really arrogant and we know the answers, why don't we take a look at this story and ask the question nobody's been asking. So what does this say about God that at a time when four Hebrews that we know of, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are captured who need to know what's coming, who are desperate to know what's coming. At a time when God can choose to speak and give a vision to them, instead he chooses to give a vision to the captor, to the politician that is out of control. What does that say about your God and about who he's willing to work with and who he wants to work through? What does that say? Because we get pretty arrogant about, well, I'm a believer, so God's going to bless me. You're not a believer. God's not going to bless you. He's not going to speak to you. He's not going to speak through you. He's not going to inspire you or impress you to do something. What does it say when you look at Daniel chapter 2 and you realize God himself chose to speak to the enemy? David says, we're not the soul guardian of the spirit of prophecy. That's right. And the spirit of prophecy is a spirit. It's not an individual although there are individuals who have, and we believe have, demonstrated that the spirit of prophecy has been at work with them, within them. So when you look at this, we've got a challenge because we've got to stop looking at the image and we have to start looking at the God who showed the image. And so as we continue on in verses 14 to 23 of Daniel chapter 2, we read on when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. I don't know if someone's coming to say, okay, come on, it's time for you to die. By the way, Arioch, it's believed that he was not simply just some captain of the guard. He's the executioner. And the executioner knocks on your door, it's not a good day. So how do you, when the executioner knocks on your door, answer with wisdom and discretion? This says a lot about Daniel, because remember, Daniel's about 17 years old at this time. The beginning of Daniel chapter 2, it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, but you have to understand something, because the math doesn't work out if you're using the Western understanding of math. Chances are, this is like toward the end of the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and they don't count the year of accession, the year that he, he replaced his father. We already know it's a three-year, the scripture told us last chapter, it's a three-year process to go through the training. And it's at this time when Daniel and his, the three Hebrew friends are actually in the service of Nebuchadnezzar. So we know this is right at the beginning. He probably just weeks earlier has, uh, has found Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be 10 times smarter and you know, 10 times healthier and everything better with these four whom God had blessed. 
And so it's probably just on the tail of their acceptance into their new position. I don't know how you respond when you're new on a job, but the first couple of weeks is not the time you want to upset the fruit basket, is it? It's also not the time when you want your boss to come in in a tirade and not only say you're fired, but your head's going to come off too. You hear, you hear the uh, statement of uh, the boss is coming in and heads are going to roll. This is what's happening. Because heads are about to roll, literally. So, as we continue. Verse 15, Daniel asked Ariok, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Ariok told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Verse 17, then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of the world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness. Though he is surrounded by light, I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So there's a ton here I don't have time to go into, but first of all, he calls God the God of heaven, the God of the heavens. This is a challenge in this area because the other occult magicians, astrologers, they called their gods the gods of the heavens. And what Daniel's doing here is saying, look, yeah, I don't know everything I need to know, but I know that out of all the gods in the heaven, you are the God of the heavens. And I know that this vision's come from heaven, so I'm, I'm praying to the God of heaven to come and give us this wisdom. Now imagine this. It's a, such a beautiful scene. You got Daniel and three other young teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Is there nothing more beautiful than seeing a group of high schoolers circle around and having prayer? Iron sharpening iron, fervently praying to a God that they desperately need to connect with. I think this part gets jumped over in the story as well. These moments that, yes, God controls it. Who's the vision coming from? The vision's coming from God. What's the result of the vision? It makes the king so furious, he wants to kill everybody because they can't tell him what he has hired them to tell him. And in the midst of that, you've got four men in the room. It's very reminiscent of Acts chapter 2, when you have 120 people in an upper room gathering together and asking the question, what now? Death is here. And they say this prayer, and God answers this prayer. And finally, the believers are in on it. What's it tell you about God who would allow his followers to be in that situation? Is it okay that God allows us to be in these situations? If God is God, shouldn't he be protecting us from these situations? Not putting us in these precarious situations? What does it tell you about God that he would allow his believers to be in this situation? because we're going to see them in a lot of these situations coming up, too. I want to go to the green microphone over here. Yeah. You know, I think um, when we face trials and tribulations, that's the time that we are more receptive to the Holy Spirit and to growth. Yeah. So, you know, we can, you're not born with a good character, yeah. um, with a perfect character like Christ, but mm -hmm. it's only through 
God, I think, allowing some of these trials and tribulations to occur. And I truly believe, for the most part, um, those, the bad things that happen are, uh, is because of Satan. Mm -hmm. You know, God's holding back um, mm -hmm. the winds of strife and such. Yeah. So, um, you know, when he chooses to maybe let go a little bit, he can use those opportunities mm -hmm. to help um, refine our characters, like with fire and such. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. absolutely beautiful to think that if he really wanted to get a message to not only Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel, think about it. If he had given this vision to Daniel and his friends, who was going to listen to them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was the most amazing way to bring it to the most influential person on the earth at that time and use that situation to glorify God and point everybody to the God of heaven. And um, I think in terms of God being in control, he's in control of how he created reality to be mm -hmm. and that life only exists um, when love is the currency. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I don't think God controls our decisions and our choices. That's and yeah. I think that's the amazing thing. So this message that I think he really wanted to get out there is that he has foreknowledge. You mm -hmm. know, it's like um, maybe a parent or somebody, you can see two clear paths, mm -hmm. and you know what's going to happen at the end of each path, yeah. but you're not forcing your child to choose one of them. But you can yeah. tell them what will happen at the yeah. end of it. And so I think with prophecy, it can give us strengthen our faith so much more and encourage us to know that at the very end he is there he loves us and he has the remedy for our salvation our healing i, I love that you know it, it reminds me of um of several things but the, the, the question comes to my mind what is the role of a skydiving instructor what's the role of a skydiving instructor now number one let's ask the question what is wise about jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> Not much, but there is an experience. There's a thrill that you will grow through emotionally, especially you'll grow through it. I was talking to a skydiving instructor and I loved what he said. I, cause I said, what's, what's your job about? What, you know, it's about keeping people safe, whatever. He goes, no, no, no. My job is to make people forget I'm there. That's my first job is to allow them. They're strapped to me, but they're in front of me. And they're not looking at me. They're looking at the fastly approaching landscape. And they're having a thrill ride. My job is to make sure I'm not distracting them from the experience so that they can fully enjoy the experience, but I'm there to pull the ripcord so they don't go splat. And in many ways, the story, you see God being a skydiving instructor saying, I'm here, I'm not going to let you die. And yet in our lives, when we see things happening, something's as simple as the person we, uh, we voted for did not get elected, and we freak out as if the world is going to absolutely fall apart, and I'm going to die. At least that's what your posts sound like on Facebook. We want God to panic with us. And God's not panicking with us. He's calm. He says, don't worry, I got the ripcord in case you're freaking out so much that you forget the safety measure that you have. I'm here, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But our challenge is, as you see on the study guide, about Daniel's belief. Although a captive and given a name by his captors that means the pagan god Bel would protect his life, Belteshazzar, Daniel shows his belief that Yahweh can do the impossible and protect him and his friends. So does God still create situations like this today with our earthly leadership? Is God testing our faith today with how we respond to political leadership? Or is he simply giving us an opportunity to demonstrate God's sovereignty? Or could it be that God wants his followers to rally our numbers and fight against ungodly leaders? What does our response to worldly politicians say 
about the character of God. I want you to think about this this week because we could go probably five sessions on just that alone. I work predominantly with people who are not also members of my faith. In fact, many of them are polite, but if pressed, they would say, yeah, I just, that's, I, I don't believe, I don't believe that's true. So I'm surrounded, and many of you, during your weekdays, are surrounded by people who have a different belief system about God than you do. To me, that's where it's frustrating when I hear them talking amongst, amongst themselves, or even to me at, at times, about what Christians believe and what Christians stand for. I think we are living at a time more than ever where the character of God is maligned by the people who say they're followers of God. Where the love of mankind, which God shows on a regular basis, is not reflected in his people. Where we're so worried about making sure this world is getting better and better, we don't even read scripture that says it's supposed to get worse and worse. And if, it, if God didn't cut his time short, no one would survive. In a world where I'm asked more often than not by Adventists, is this the time of trouble? Is this the time I'm supposed to run to the hills and protect myself? And I said, no, it's time to run to the cities. Because if you're only thinking about protecting yourself, you have no care, compassion, and love for the hurting and the dying citizens of God's kingdom that have no idea that they're citizens of God's kingdom. That's love giving a message to the enemy of love, compassion, and aid, and help. That's what God does in Daniel chapter 2, and we can't understand it. We still think it's a message for us, because, well, God did give it to Daniel, and then, no. God gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, and the only reason why he gave it to Daniel is twofold. Number one, to protect him. Number two, is to do something in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that would wake him up, that would show him there's a God that cares about him so much he wants him to know the future. And that's why we have the verses. We're jumping way ahead to verses 24 to 30. It says, Then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of the dream. Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of the dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, Is it true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Verse 27, Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it's not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. For sake of time, we're jumping down to verse 48 and 40, uh, excuse me, 46 to 49. It says, The king Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he, a, a king, worshipping his employee. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burnt sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Now understand, there was a nickname of Nebuchadnezzar, and his nickname was, you are the king of kings. And Nebuchadnezzar throws that, much like Revelation says, we're going to throw our crowns before the feet of Jesus on his throne, and we're going to say, no, no. We don't deserve this crown. He throws his title down and says, no, no, no. He is the king of kings. Verse 48, then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. 
At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. I want you to ponder this this week. Once again, God shows he can orchestrate blessings for his believers in the midst of crisis. Do you think he is still generating opportunities like this for us today? Or is that simply a practice he had to utilize before the cross at Calvary? I want to challenge you with this because we as a people are living in the midst of crises. And it's so easy for us to lose focus on the God who's bringing the vision and bringing the blessings that we focus on the cursings, on what we don't have, what we can't have, what's been taken away. And we miss the fact that in the midst of crises, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, says, Trust me. I'm not just talking to you. You think you're the only one I can talk to? You think that person is so far removed and their opinion is so strong and so publicly widespread that I can't talk to them? You don't know me. Secondly, you think you're the only one I love? You think you're the only one I care about? Don't be so quick today in our partisan politics, in our polarizing ideologies today, to think that God is not right now speaking into the hearts of man who currently are cursing his name. That's the God you serve. Because God is love. He has an unconditional love. And it's not based on whether you praise his name or curse his name. It's based on the fact that God loves all of mankind. And now, if we are somewhere between the ankles and the toenails of some feet of iron and clay, don't you know that even now, God is speaking a word of love into people you wouldn't speak to yourself? because that's the God we serve. Wow, who knew so much more was in chapter two of Daniel about the character of God. It's not just about this image. I don't know what this did to you, but this conversation touched my heart deeply as well. I can't wait for this next session. It's Daniel chapter three, and if you will, prepare for it by reading Daniel chapter three and come back this next episode to continue on this journey where God says you never stand alone. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.